So I'm asked by our host, Paramatma, to come up with a topic each month. So tonight's topic is, what did I call it? Faith Beyond Belief. Faith beyond belief. <laughs> it just hit me in a different way <laughs> than it did originally. Faith beyond belief. We need that kind of faith. Huh? So, I, I think there is a... Um, we can distinguish between belief and faith, or at least I'd, I'd like to in this discussion, relegating belief to the realm of the, of the mind and faith to the realm of the soul. Another way of talking about that would, I suppose, be to speak of a kind of a two-tier system of faith. Again, the lower tier being belief, and the upper being faith. So faith beyond belief, divine faith. But faith in general is, of course, uh, rather, it tends to be rather intangible subject, topic, difficult to speak about, to get a, to get a grip on. Um, often in the rational discussions, people drift from reason to faith and belief and become dismissed as a result of that. In some circles, it doesn't have much substance. But actually, Bhagavad Gita is a good text to refer to. It does discuss faith in the 17th chapter of the Gita. That it's uh, entitled uh, Yoga of Threefold Faith. And that's a reasonable book. And more. And that is to say that um, we are of the faith that there is something beyond reason. Life itself, for that matter, escapes reason. Certainly love, as it is said, knows no reason. Reason is rather a dry affair and um, helpful only to a point. Only to the point that it it helps one to point beyond itself, to its own limitations. So, faith in this, then, in consideration of this, is so much more substantial than reason. The Gita, Sri Krishna says that, Shraddho ayam purushaha. He says, that person is his or her faith. So it's what we are, in a sense, what we are made of. There's a sense, also, outside of those circles that don't ostensibly put a lot of faith in faith, that faith has, is of universal value, a value to all. I think that... Uh, even those that dismiss faith in certain circumstances as being a deviation from reason, nonetheless, are very much, as the Gita said, moved by a particular faith themselves. 
just like this, what I mean to say that it's uh, universal, universally appreciated, as much as there's even honesty amongst thieves. Shadow of it, no doubt, when they insist on dividing the loot fairly and evenly, but nonetheless, um, it finds itself even in those circles. So similarly with faith. And this is what the Gita says in saying that uh, a person is his or her faith. Shraddha. Shraddha means, in Sanskrit, means faith. Shraddha, I am Purushaha. Very nice statement. The person is his or her faith. And Krishna says this in the context also of identifying a person with his or her mind and thereby connecting faith with mind. Now this is interesting. Mind is also a bit intangible, a bit elusive and difficult to get a grip on. And mind is of of an illuminating nature. In other words, because we have a mind in one sense, on a low level, on a material level, we can know. I've often said it's not because we have a mind that we can know. It's not because we have eyes that we can see or ears that we can hear, but these things are getting in the way of our knowing, seeing and hearing and so forth. That's in an absolute sense, but in in a relative sense, within the framework of our present uh, human existence, material existence, then obviously having a mind means that you can know. So it's of an illuminating nature. In fact, the word used in the Gita there in that second verse of the 17th chapter for mind is sattva. Sattva means existence. It means here mind. It it also refers to that uh, quality of nature a quality of um, of nature that is uh, illuminating. In a physical sense, there are obviously two dimensions to ourselves, materially speaking, physical and, and psychic. So in a physical sense, manifestations of matter, which our, our body is, we think ourselves to be American or Indian or black or white or man or woman and so forth in in the sense that we are the identified with that body we are the body to some extent by way of identification and and so the physical body or all physical things all material manifestations have a way of making themselves known that we call sattva and all material manifestations also have some um, they're all moving actually everything's moving that we call rajas and everything has some resistance to move some inertia that we call tamas and then on the psychic level these influences of matter psychic level being kind of like a subtle material realm, if you will, the realm of mind, subtle and more flexible and more possibilities lie there. In the physical, let's take physical for example, physically we, there are many things in this room 
but it would be difficult for any one of us to take all of them with us physically, at least in one trip. Hmm? <laughs> but it's possible to take them all with us in the mind. So more spacious realm, this uh, mind, subtle matter, if you will. More possibilities lie there also. Here we can have gold and we can have a mountain. But it's difficult to have a golden mountain. But in the mind we can have that. In the mind we can do so many things, so quickly, <laughs> so easily. But in the physical realm it's much more difficult. We laugh as if, yes, if only I could do it physically and it would be real. But it's just as real <laughs> in the mind as it is in the physical realm, perhaps more so. But at any rate, both this gross, if you like, and subtle realms of, of matter fall short of affording us our highest uh, prospect in life, the, the facility to be all that we are, so to speak. And they are, this subtle and gross manifestations of matter, all uh, influences of these, combinations of these influences, sattva, rajas, and tamas. So as in the physical realm, so in the subtle realm of mind, psychic realm. So our psyche, if you will, is constituted of, of sattva, rajas, tamas. And it won't show up as, it shows up more as like clarity, um, certainty. Clarity means certainty. You, you have some sense of how to proceed, what to do, some surety. This is uh, a stabilizing kind of influence. This is sattva. And then rajas and tamas uh, in the psychic realm. Rajas means that urge to create and to, to be something materially, to go up the corporate ladder and to, to make something of yourself. And it, it doesn't just play out in a, in a crude sense like, like that. I mean, we are all influenced by that to one extent or another. We want to be better in school or the, the best yoga teacher or whatever it may be. This is Rajas. And, and Thomas is a little bit unproductive. I tend towards uh, dreaming and being unrealistic. Dreaming in, in a way that will never come true and wasting time doing so. Uh, tendency, psychic tendency towards being lazy and sleepy and and uh, some denial, maybe intoxication or something like that, just kind of moving further away from even the, the, um, the prospect of material reality. So, I mentioned sattva in relation to its influence, its manifestation in the psychic realm. And as, as I said, sattva provides clarity and surety and certainty and faith. You see? So faith is of the nature of sattva. As mind itself is said to be, according to the Sankhya, you may be familiar with Sankhya, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a discipline, it's a philosophy, and parts of it are incorporated into Vedanta and, and Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and so forth also. It's kind of a, uh, it's used there to describe the the evolution of matter, the unfolding of our material makeup 
and the world around us, uh, the basic building blocks of uh, existence, one of which is mind, for example, one of which is ahankar. It's kind of like the core. Ahankar means uh, identity, a false kind of identity, an identity, an identification on the part of consciousness with matter. This is a a problem, a mistake, a, a self-deception. And from there, then, as it said, when one first chooses to deceive, what is it? Oh, what a web one weaves or something like that. So we're entangled. That's the whole karmic predicament. begins with this. But when ahankar is mixed with sattva, it produces, according to Sankhya and according to the Gita and so forth, and yoga, it produces mind, that thing we call mind. And so it's of the nature of sattva. It's of the nature of illumination. It's illuminating. Like I said, materially speaking, we know because we have the mind. That's kind of a relative knowing. So in this sense, Krishna is saying in Gita, oh, this mind is of the nature of sattva and shraddha, faith, is one's mind, one, a person is one's mind, we are our, our thoughts. <laughs> we are the dark as they get, and as much as we try to hide them. <laughs> We are those thoughts as well. We are more our minds than we are our bodies in the sense that if we're the soul, the self, is extremely sukshma, extremely subtle. If mind is subtle, then a body, then, and then a soul so much more. In fact, it's so subtle that it's, it's really categorically different than mind, body, and all of the constituents that uh, make up matter, more elusive, even though it's us, more difficult to get a grip on in the present circumstances. But because mind is more subtle than body, in one sense it's closer to the self. So this faith, belief even, I'm talking really about belief here, I mean a product of the mind, it's closer to the. It's, we're getting closer to the self. So just by talking about faith, we're getting closer to the self because it again, faith is a is is clarity, isn't it? Think about it. It's some surety, some some certainty, which allows us to move freely. And that is really the nature of the unobstructs a soul unobstructed by the illusion of of material identification. When we identify with matter, uh, we are we limit ourselves considerably. I've often said, and it's worth repeating, but when we we come to the human form of life through an evolution of so many species, we arrive at human life, the consciousness that we are, through all of that evolution, has reached such a point that it can understand that, it's, that it exists. Like the, the French philosopher said, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. This is a wonderful uh, time to be alive. Hmm? 
but we can know that we are. And and we have a sense of our being that it that it is so profound, so beautiful, so capable that in human life what's happening is this this self that transcends the limits of our humanity is starting to poke itself kind of come out from underneath the covers, if you will. And therefore it wants to do all the things that Consciousness is doing in other forms of life, limited by those forms as they are. In other words, consciousness in a bird body flies in the sky, and in the whale's body, you know, dives deep into the into the ocean. And we we want we want to go to the bottom of the ocean. We want to fly high in the sky, and we want to do. There's a sense in us, in other words, when we reach this human form of life that that we can do anything. But unfortunately, without good counsel, I mean, a good opportunity is one thing, but then how to take advantage of it? You could win the lottery, but you might also need some advice how to spend that money wisely so that you would actually become rich, so you'd actually become wealthy, so that would do something good for you, for others, and so forth. Otherwise, you could just waste it, right? So we have a good opportunity, human life. Therefore, it said, mm, what is that nice song, Bengali song? Dulava manava janama satsange tarha e bhava sindure. Dulava manava janama. This human life, manava, janma, human birth, that is dulab, means rare. It's rare. We're worried sometimes about overpopulation, but... We're a rare species here. On the end of my finger, there are more microbes than we could uh, have people on the planet. All living beings. We're surrounded by life in so many forms. And we're just a few humans. And fewer still humans that are talking about this kind of thing. And where does that talk happen? Dulabhamanava janama satsangi. Satsanga. A kasanga company, association, oh, that's uh, centered on that which is sat, that which is real. So these two things, manava janma, human birth, and satsanga, saintly company, saintly association, tadaha e bhava sindure. The bhava sindhu, it means o- ocean of emotions, which is what material life is, is about, you know, the roller coaster ups and downs of our life, like like the tossing and turning of the waves of an ocean. Bhabhasindu Tadaha e Bhabhasindu. With these two things, human birth and Sadhu Sangha, you can easily cross over the ocean of material emotions. And go to the other side. You can you can stay above the fray, so to speak. You, 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 can, you can be saved from drowning in the ocean of material existence. and You can come to the shore. Such a great opportunity, human life, to take advantage of it. That is our task. To get good counsel, good help. Hmm? After all, all species of life, if we look at them, we see 
they have a system, they come equipped with the means to acquire what that form of life, what opportunity that life form of life affords them. And we, we've been there. Now we're here. We've evolved to this point. But what I mean by that is, for example, every living being, with dogs, cats, we have skunks at our monastery, they all have, and cows, uh, they all have a system to get food. Right? It's kind of built in. Uh, they know where to go and what to eat and what not to eat. They have a system for mating. They know when to mate, with who to mate, how to mate. But they don't have to read a book about that. Hmm? They know that. <laughs> how to sleep, when to sleep, no problem. No sleeping pills necessary. No amphetamines to stay awake necessary. Nothing like that how to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, and how to protect themselves as much as one can. We all have to die. Or so it would seem. They have a system to protect themselves. I was reminded of the skunk system last night. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> hmm. Now we have these problems too. We have to meet these needs to eat, to sleep, to mate, defend, but we are very confused about how to do all these things comparatively, and we are supposed to be an evolved species. So why is that? We are struggling to figure out how to mate successfully, how to sleep successfully, how to eat properly, how to defend ourselves. So confused about that that we threaten one another and the whole world, the whole planet practically. The reason, I think, if you will, that we are confused about these things is that we are confused to the extent that we are not really living a human life. That means we are not pressed to answer the questions that arise in human life that do not arise in other species of life, that are the main question, the pressing issues. Yes, we need to eat. Yes, we need to sleep. Yes, some relationship uh, is, can be helpful. And uh, defending ourselves and so forth. But we have another need. And it arises only in our species. We have a need to know the why. Why keami? Kene? Chartapatrai? Why am I? Who am I? What, for what purpose do I exist? I know that I exist. How can they ask why? They don't know that they exist. You understand? So w with knowing that you exist comes a problem also. <laughs> oh, there's a burden. We can ignore the burden and be a dvipada pashu. That means two-legged animal, hmm? <laughs> if you like. But that is not progress, and that is not using the rare human opportunity for all that it can afford us. So we should be pressed to know, to ask, to pursue, and as there is a system built into nature to meet the needs of all the other species of life, so this need that arises in human life, there's a system built into it to answer that need, and that is sadhu-sangha. That is coming from up to down, 
to take us avuttara, coming from up to down, to take us to that side, help from that side, revelation. From that contact comes this faith beyond belief. Otherwise, belief, faith that we are, as Gita says, that is our mind, that gives us some surety how to act and so forth, that has value in one sense, that is limited. Why? Because we're all sure about different things, aren't we? Somebody's real sure that we should go to war and somebody's real sure that we shouldn't. Hmm? <laughs> For example. So, again, I mentioned these three influences of nature, sattva, rajas, and tamas. Although shraddha, faith, is of the nature of sattva in general, we are nonetheless influenced by all three of these qualities. So that faith will be influenced by those qualities. Therefore, we have faith mixed with rajas, faith mixed with tamas, and in different ways, and rajas and tamas, and, and so forth. And then we have, as a result of that, we being that faith, in a material sense, have different objects of, of worship and different, we, we move in different ways with different sense of surety and, and, and so forth and clarity and, uh, and from an absolute point of view with quite a bit of confusion, even though we're moving according to our faith. But when we are fortunate enough to get contact from, if you will, the world of faith, the realm of faith, because although faith is manifest here, in a partial sense, like the, like the honesty amongst thieves, it's kind of a shadow of faith, which I call belief. No matter how, how prominent it is, it leaves us in some doubt. What is the manifestation of that doubt? That we're not fulfilled. We're not fully satisfied. We are not fully happy. And we are deriving our sense of happiness from things that don't endure. So there's a real formula for dissatisfaction. In other words, the more you like it, the more the problem, because it's not going to remain. Dukkalayam ashashvatam. Krishna has summed up the world in two words. Dukkalayam. It's a place of material world. It's full of misery. And then if you say, well, I like it, he says, well, ashashvatam, you can't keep it. So now what? Now it's gotten that much worse. Just see. <laughs> That's a problem for us. So belief, faith, as good as it is, manifesting as it does within the psychic realm and playing itself out, expressing itself in the physical realm of our physical existence, this is only a shadow of real faith this belief. And, and, and this is faith, if you will, shadow of real faith manifesting in a world of doubt. No doubt. Even if we proceed with, by the guide of intellect and reason, some people advocate, you know, we should be, we're rational animals, we should be, be rational. And there's some truth to that. But, Unless, as I said earlier, reason points to the to its own shortcoming, like I would like to at, at this time, 
a reason-ruled life is, is a life that, uh, that has a big sign that says, proceed with caution. You're always doubting, as sure as you are, but you always listen, like you listen to me, and you're maybe guided by your intellect, so you're listening to some things, and you're agreeing to something, and let them go in, and other things, I'm not sure about that, I'm not going to let that go into my heart. You're proceeding with caution. I'm using logical arrangement of words and all and to speak to you and so forth I'm, appe- I'm appealing to you from from my heart from my realization in, uh, in a, with a reasonable presentation of words to communicate that and I'm trying to go beyond your intellect I'm trying to go go past that and capture your heart and touch your soul with my feeling and even if my words which are always difficult things, words, mean something slightly different to you than what I meant, and, and, and we're not connecting entirely on an intellectual level. Invisibly, we can connect. This is how Shraddha comes. This is how divine faith comes from Sadhu Sangha in this way. This kind of meetings, unknown, unknown to us, what happened even sometimes. There's a nice story in this regard. We call, in my tradition, uh, Shraddha. It's kind of like the, the Bhakti Lata. Mine is a Bhakti tradition, so a Vedanta, of, a devotional form of Vedanta. We call, Lata means like, uh, like a vine, like a creeper, like a, you know, that attaches itself to a, to a wall like ivy and like jasmine and, and goes up. So, Bhakti Lata, the, the creeper, the vine of, of bhakti, that attaches itself to a sadhu, a saintly person, and grows in that company and bears um, and blossoms and bears fruit. When that um, vine comes above the ground and starts to participate, we call that shraddha. But there's something, if you use this analogy, play this analogy out, in planting a seed that happens before it comes above the ground, right? First it germinates there and it sends roots down and so forth and something's going on. So before we come to actually the beginning, if you will, of divine faith as a result, as I'm speaking, of good association, of something something from the land of faith, beyond doubt, where movement is not proceeding with caution, homeland of the heart, if you will, moving freely, without any worry, like Gita says, don't worry in the beginning and in the end, don't worry. Masucha, sarvadhanvan puritta mamekam sharanam braja, om tum moksha ishami, masucha. In the beginning of the Gita, Krishna told Arjuna, you worry too much. Hmm? Then he spoke about 600 verses, and at the end he said, now don't worry. And this is why. What are you? What do you have to worry about? So the homeland of the heart, so to speak, this is, this is, this is why you don't worry. You don't have to read the label, what's inside. It's like at home, your loved one puts something on the table, you don't, you don't go, what's the ingredients? Mm-hmm. But if you go to the store, you want, what's inside? What did they put in? 
what kind of chemicals or other unedible things, poisons even. <laughs> hmm? But at home, then, you don't have to think, worry like that. We want to go home. Home. And home-going. A home-knowing person is essential for home-going. And what a home-knowing person will, will do is speak in such a way that, it, that, that, as we say, that hit home. That means to touch the heart. And then our task upon hearing that is to, yes, that's true. Let me embrace that and make that part of my life. You understand? Not to hear it and go, yes, that's good, and let it go in the intellect, and then, but not let it go in the heart and become part of my being. When it goes in the heart, we allow it to go in and then we make it part of our being. What are we doing? We are making ourselves. We're, we're changing ourselves from our material constitution into a spiritual constitution, really. We're, we're becoming a spiritual person. And as we do, then we, be, we become, we get a passport, we get a visa, we get the possibility of living, dwelling, residing in a land, in a realm beyond death. There's nothing to worry about, right? the homeland of the soul. So, it is, if you will, a land of faith, where this is a land of doubt. So, to go there, how to go there, how to be there. So, some gracious grant comes from that side. It must come from that side. It's overflowing. The nature of that faith and the surety of that we know that we exist, but we don't know how much we exist, to the extent we exist. We all go, yes, I know I exist, but the extent to which we exist, we don't know. That's why we have fear. We, don't, we may know theoretically, if I'm so, but we still fear, because we really don't know the extent to which we exist. How do we know? Not by thinking about it. No. You see, you, you have to become that. Um, you have to become like that. You're a unit of faith, full faith, divine faith. You have to become like that realm. If you want to live in the sun, you have to become like fire. If you want to live in a realm of consciousness unfettered by matter and its shortcoming, its limitations that it places upon the self, you have to become free from those fetters. And that realm is naturally making itself available in this world as part of the system, if you will, for humans to realize their potential, as I said. To take advantage of that, then worries about eating, sleeping, mating, and defending will become as small as they are. The big picture and the big, the big need, the real need, is addressed. Revelation, sacred texts, these have great value. Saintly persons, their company, more valuable, even. Scripture is like a, like a passive agent of divine faith. And the sadhu, saintly person, like an active agent. You can read the text, but it can't ask you, so do you understand? <laughs> but someone else, a saintly person, so you read it, so do you understand? Yes. What does the understanding? Let me hear. Can go after you. She can go after you. So, so, 
This is a, faith is a, is a contagious thing. Who has that? Shadhalam Jano. Who has that can give that. So saintly persons, they move in this world. And what are they? Just like us. They are their faith. But that, what they are, they are the divine faith. They are the full face of faith. Not just the mental expression of faith. Not just belief. They may move like us. But the motivation is very different. Very difficult to understand. Then they move like us, and so, but the, what is the motivation behind that? In time, we, we, we can feel it. By good company, even by hearing. You hear, you go home. You change. You think about that. You have to change. You cannot be a hypocrite anymore. You have to change. Keep coming, keep hearing. You have to change. It's good for you. It's like they like to push, but just just enough that you know it's good for you. You can feel the push, but you know it's good for you. And you can go that far. The next month, a little further. Cooking is gradual, but the food must be on the on the flame. Right? You can you come in the kitchen and say, Where's the dinner? Well, it's cooking. What do you mean it's cooking? It's not even on the fire. Coming gradually. <laughs> Put on the stove. Hmm? So, so <laughs> good company, saintly company is like this. It's like the fire. We have to be in that company. Then we will gradually become offerable. Without that company, we already have company. We're in the company of our mind. In the shallow faith that is belief, that, that is making us sure about one thing or another thing, but unsure overall and unhappy overall, or not happy to the extent that we could be at every moment, so blissful that waves of bliss come from you. Not that happy. <laughs> but that's possible for us, by good company. And so that kind of person... They did sadhu, saintly person. They move in the world, even in and amongst us sometimes. And by that contact, even unknowingly, something happens. We call that agyata sukriti, just like that vine of bhakti that I mentioned. Before it comes above the ground, something is going on beneath the ground. So there's a story, a famous story, to help illustrate this point. There was a monk, young monk, living at the monastery, and as they would do, he would, went out to beg. Monks can beg. <laughs> That's about all we can do. I beg you. <laughs> and um, so he went to the house of one fellow, and a man had just gotten in a big argument with his wife, and, and some knock on the door. He opened the door, and there was a monk with his cloth asking for something for the temple. So the man was so in such a state, he said, he just, he was further disturbed by the fact that there was a monk at the door. So he took some ashes from the fire, not hot ones, but ashes as if, you know, ashes. He said, here, take this. Get out of here. <laughs> hmm? So, you know, monks, they're used to getting insulted and they have to deal with that, and that's good for them. So, <laughs> actually, keep them humble and. And uh, so he went home, and he, he, he carried those ashes, and he thought, oh, how, do, how do you, must be some way to use these ashes. 
I begged on behalf of God. God has given me ashes. So, it must be some way. So he took the ashes home. Then, then he, if, if you take ashes, you can polish brass with that, you know. So he took all the paraphernalia on the altar, brass and silver items and, and things in the temple, and he shined them. So as he's shining them, that man who gave him the ashes, something's happening to him. He doesn't know why. Sometime later, again, he's making the rounds. He comes to the same door. Uh, you know, there's many doors, so didn't know he was there before he opened the door. And there that man says, Oh, you've come. I felt so bad that I, the last time you were here, I threw ashes at you. Can you please come in and sit and let me give you something to eat and, and, and so on. And this way now he had grown, he'd done something unknowingly and not even with a good intent in relation to a, uh, a saint, a saintly person. And naturally, because of the motivation with which but that, that saintly person is moving, he found a way to, to take advantage of the way in which that person interacted with him for his benefit. Because a, a real sadhu is a giver. Hmm? He has nothing, if he go to beg door to door, but for what reason? Not really for food. There used to be a system in India that saints would go. The famous Sukadev of the Bhagavat, Purana, was a 16-year-old boy. He would go and beg milk because every householder would have a cow. This is an agrarian culture in India. He would beg some milk and he would live on milk. And he would beg milk and then the householder would give the milk and then the householder would ask some question. And then he would give the real milk. <laughs> he would give the cream. He would speak about spiritual topics in that household. So the saintly person is living for this. Love is about giving. So if one really, really has love, then they have nothing to get. They only have to give. And it can be very creative. So this monk was very creative. But that's the way love is, of course, too. And love turns faults into ornaments. If you love someone, their faults, you find a way of... Oh, I think it was charming. <laughs> I like that part about him the most, as a matter of fact. Love is blind, you know. That's a fact. Blind to, blind to faults. It can be good. And when we have real love... It's really blind to faults, and it has the power to not only to see faults as ornaments, but to turn them into ornaments. So see how he decorated that man's heart. By, just by his motive to do so, by using ashes he gave him. And the man now, at the second time of meeting, he wanted to hear from him something. We call that gyata sukriti. Agyatami agya means, agya means, not gya means to know, so agya, not knowing. Without knowing, he did something in relation to a saintly person, without seeking any benefit or anything. Just get out of here. Who are you, a beggar? And he got some good. Now, second time, with some knowledge, he's dealing with him. From agyata sukriti to gyata sukriti to shraddha. Then he became a devotee himself. It dawned on him what was the value of human life, what was the value of saintly association he began to tread the path himself so in this way invisibly even in the world this kind of 
necessity for human society is being distributed and creating the opportunity for us to fulfill, to, to realize the real potential that human life affords us. It is so great. We should try to take advantage. I appreciate all of you coming tonight to hear. Are there any questions? Yes. I don't really know how to formulate your question, but I was thinking about dreams and that how things come through with dreams and how to have faith and stuff like that. Uh-huh. It's not a clear question, but I can try to respond to 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 that. Dreams mostly are a product of our waking state in terms of the way in which we are mentally absorbed in the waking state. Because in the dream state, then the physical world kind of closes down, right? And we, the self, are living in the mental world, which is more active. (laughs) The more we close down the physical self, the more active the mental realm will become. That's why if you want to think deeply, you have to close the door and have quiet and withdraw your senses from the objects of the senses that are taking you here and there and so forth. So to go to that plane, as we say commonly, to think deeply, I'm thinking now, be quiet. Right? So, what we're preoccupied in our waking state, identifying with the, all the physical objects and thinking that they're important for protecting us and for our survival and what we need and physically and emotionally and so forth, busy, busy, busy we are, we tend not to take the thought world as as serious sometimes because oh, those, that was just a dream. <laughs> So is your waking state, <laughs> just a dream. And everything will transform and change right before your eyes. Married a beautiful guy and he became a couch potato. <laughs> it became a nightmare, <laughs> suddenly. <laughs> uh, not suddenly. It changed a little, took a little bit longer. In dreams it goes quicker. <laughs> but anyway relevant to your quandary, your, your, your question. The dreams are mostly a product of how we're absorbed mentally, knowingly or not, in our waking state. Because the mind is always active there in our waking state and kind of connecting the dots and making it possible to do the things that we do. And uh, we're not always paying attention, but information and experience is stored there. So at night, then, that information comes to bear, and it may be combined with other information that's stored there and so forth. And, and by and large, it's not what happens in the dreams are not that important or that prophetic, and then we shouldn't put as much stock in them, perhaps, um, as we might think. But that's not always the case. And if we're preoccupied with spiritual things, spiritual interest, then if we have dreams that correspond with that, that tell us, oh, that you should go here or go there, or that you might encounter something, meet something, and, and it happens, then we would put a little more stock in that. In other words, the more you're 
your mental state is preoccupied with spiritual things and the more valuable the the dream experience will be and it it, can, it is possible that you can get messages or some direction there that is the nature of of spiritual reality if you will asserting itself as i said saintly persons they assert themselves in the world and go after us in an active way in a sense so you see this Consciousness is not a it's not a dead thing. It's it's it is life. Matter only seems to be alive because we've lent ourselves to it. We're the life. So as consciousness is developing in a, in a spiritual direction, then it uh, it can assert itself and go after us and make itself known. And even while you're physically asleep, sometimes most does that help at all? Yes. Hmm. So it's up to the person to figure out if they should have faith in the dream or not, but if you're saying if you revenge something and then follow through and then it has more credibility if it actually comes to reality. Yeah, it can also help to have good guidance. You could, you could have a dream and you could ask about it, somebody that you had confidence in. Mm-hmm. And that person could give you some help, in, you know, in terms specifically. Another thing is that, as I mentioned, sacred texts. You know, a lot of us here in, in the West... We like things about Eastern spirituality, and, and therefore we're gathered here and so forth. But we're also pretty, kind of a proud, proud group, you know. And we are, you know, America, yeah. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and um, you know, it's, even though we can all laugh about that, it shows up in us also. And uh, often, in relation to our spiritual pursuit, we may tend to dismiss certain things, and you know, want to want to like, let's get to the bottom line here, you know, and. and and we can tend to water it down sometimes, even quite a bit. And we can, you know, we can tend to like draw a little from here and there and just kind of suddenly become, you know, a Vedantist, but you're just really living in your, in a dream world, uh, in, your, in your imagination. And so, um, with regard to sacred texts and so forth, we may think, hey, you know, it's in a different language, you know, it's, it's a translation, there's so many terms there and so forth. You know, I, I don't think we need all the details, it's just, like I said, get to the bottom line and take the essential spiritual truths. And sometimes in that we, we do ourselves kind of an injustice. And so with regard to guidance, uh, I personally in my life, I've been involved in this for about 35 years, since I was about 21 or so. Actively, I mean, formally, inquiring before that, but uh, I found these texts very helpful. I mean, they were they were written by very thought, very thoughtful, more than thoughtful, beyond thinking, people. And so uh, it can very much help us to dis- determine, discern what's imaginary, what's what's not, and and get kind of a a theoretical, conceptual uh, orientation to spirituality. Although spirituality is ultimately beyond conception, still we might as well use our mind spiritually as long as we have one and and our intelligence. And those texts are for that. They give us some theoretical... They don't say everything, but they say a lot. So I, I would advise... Like Gita, I'm always quoting the Gita. Other books too, but... Good one to read. Yes. Will that help with moving through fear? 
Yes, that will help. Um, it will help you to understand the nature of fear also. And what is the underlying cause of fear? Fear is predominates material existence. It's more dominant than any other material necessity like eating, sleeping, and mating, for example. I mentioned that along with fearing or protecting oneself. It's hard to believe, but fear is more pervasive than, than the sexual urge. It more underlies our whole material existence. So, so you know, you know, we fear on certain levels. Like I have a student in Finland, she's afraid of the dark. <laughs> you know, She's a famous um, cartoonist. And she recently did, did a, uh, had some of her car- cartoons published about her, her experience when her husband went to Russia and she was home and in the dark and so forth. And I gave her some ideas also for it. But so um, people are afraid of different things and on different levels and so forth. And, but there's an underlying basis to that. Where does it all you know, kind of come from? So these kind of texts and saintly association can help us to get to the, the root of that rather than you know, like a patchwork kind of solution to moving through fear. Fear is oh, tied to attachment, of course on a basic level. But yes, it will be helpful. I'd say, I really feel your question. So I think that it will, it, will, it will be a good exercise for you to pursue that. Yes? In the back. Yes? Um, if you feel, if your heart, and also know if your mind, what you're faith or what you think you're here for, but the material things, uh, hold you back on Getting to that point, what kind of actions or educations will help you to get to that point? Yeah, that's. I mean, the, you know, your your dilemma is not uh, something unique to you. <laughs> I think everybody everybody here feels that, and uh, and that's why we come to these kind of gatherings. And this is really this is really the solution to that. What can we do? That's what we can do. Because the more you sit and discuss these things and talk about it, the more you have to think about that. The more you have to... You can't just keep coming to these kind of gatherings and and um, continue to allow things to get in the... material things, as you put it, to get in the way of your real self-interest. Because these kind of meetings serve to really emphasize, underscore, and stress, and, 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 and lay bare, make naked our real necessity. Now, there's things that we can, of course, carry with us and um, from such gatherings. And, and, you know, kirtan, for example, which is what this is built at as a kirtan gathering with a short talk. I hope I haven't gone on too long. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, this is very powerful. Kirtan, what is it, kirtan? Mm, so many statements. Mukta Sangha Param Hmm. This is in, in, very powerful. If we, we talked about the scriptural canon and so forth, uh, I'm pretty well read in all these things: Upanishads, Veda, Gita, Puranas, and things for many, many years. And I, I've done a translation and 600-page commentary on Bhagavad Gita, also, for example, and some Upanishads and so forth. And and so I, I tell you from my own uh, experience there that there is nothing. It is emphasized 
more as a spiritual practice that is more efficacious, I should say, than this kirtan, and especially in the, in the times in which we live. And I'll give you an interesting example of this, how this manifests even in a secular society. Kirtan means chanting. You can, you can chant, of course, by yourself, and, and um, you know, I, I do japa. You know what is japa? Nam japa. So uh, I have like beads, sacred tulsi, sacred, sacred basil, 108 beads, and I chant Krishna nam on those beads so many hours a day. That's a kind of chanting. Just a little, uh, just barely audible. Going the nam, nam mantra, mantra of the names of God, over and over again. Then also in singing, like we did tonight, in group. And this is even more, more, more powerful as a practice. It has the power, great power uh, to, uh, to uh, dismantle the false persona that we've built up by our desires. We are our desires and attachments. That's what we are. We're a mother because we're attached to our daughter. We're a daughter because we're attached to our mother. So all attachments define us. That's why in the Gita, when Krishna told Arjuna to kill Bhishma and Drona, who were his main attachments, he said, how can I go on? What will be left of me? What Krishna was really telling kill your attachments, you see. <laughs> and you will see what will be left of you. All of you will come out. You're only experiencing a fraction of yourself now. So, this kirtan is very, very powerful. And I wanted to give an example of how it manifests. As I said, in this time, age in which we live, according to this, this sacred text, this kirtan is most efficacious. And it involves like taking to the streets and chanting almost, you know. And, and we find that in our own experience, like politically, for example, the whole of the, the, the power of the uh, Soviet Union was, was toppled by people going to the streets and now organizing marches for the, you know, a gay pride or, you know, peace march to Washington or these things, it, it, you see, they have power. Take you to the streets with slogans and chanting and singing. So this is in a secular sense how this spiritual truth is also manifesting in that, in that realm, expressing itself in that realm. We've seen many examples of this kind of thing. And so this kirtan is a very powerful practice you can take with you. To your home, it's not difficult to learn, and it's not—it's it, not difficult. To, in fact, to do that, there's no hard and fast rules for that. Like other forms of meditation, for example, if you look carefully, they're—they're uh, not. You can't—you can't just go home and meditate, really. You know why? Because first, you have to get together your yama niyam, and your your ethical world. You got to be ethical, right? And then you got to sit, right? Then you've got to catch your breath, pratyahar. Then you've got to, um, what is it? Or pranayam, I said, mean, catch your breath, pranayam. Then pratyahara, you have to withdraw. You have to practice being able to withdraw from the objects that are attracting you through your senses and making, causing you to identify with the world and material things. And after pratyahara, then dharna. Then you can do dharna. 
that you can actually concentrate on one thing. And then you can do dhyan. Dhyan means meditation. That means not concentrating the mind, but that the mind has become so concentrated that the soul can touch, start to touch God. That dhyan means connection between God and soul, unobstructed by mind. And then samadhi. So you think about it. This is Patanjali has given this in Yoga Sutra. It is there in Gita also. First five chapters before you get to dhyan even. What is he talking about in those previous chapters? What has to be accomplished? So it makes sense. People want to sit down and meditate. Can you sit down and be in samadhi? Why not choose that? Why meditate? That's the second to the last state. Why not just do the last one? <laughs> just sit down and be in samadhi. You can't do that. You can't just sit down and meditate either. You have to do so many things, so many prerequisites. But you can sit. And even you don't have to sit. You can stand and chant. <laughs> you see, and do kirtan. Hmm? It's very user-friendly. Hmm? <laughs> very highly recommended. Hmm? And it will capture your mind. Therefore, kirtana pravave smarana svobhave. Very nice statement. The power of kirtan will cause spontaneous meditation. In other words, it will arrest the senses, it will arrest the mind. And when the mind is arrested, as it should be in dharana, in concentration, you can feel yourself. And it's good. <laughs> you feel good. <laughs> we feel quite good. And you don't even have to think you have to reach out and touch anybody or anything. <laughs> even move, or if you were to move, it's just to celebrate how good that is. So, of course, it doesn't happen immediately. It could, but, but, it, but it's a powerful practice. So you have to take these things with you, and, and you can get help. Like you can come here, and Paramatma, she knows about these things too. Therefore, she has a yoga center. Now, Kirtanir, uh, he must know about this, Agni Dev. He has a nice restaurant, Govindas, named after his god. And he has, so anyway, you can, that's my suggestion. That's what you can do. We talked for quite a while, maybe. We can have a little chanting and then some refreshments. So very nice uh, to talk with you all. I've been very much uh, uh, to honor and uh, your inquisitiveness and sincerity made me say many nice things that I never said before. So it was good for me to hear those things. Thank you very much.